Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Tech Talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, tech heads from all across this wide brown land. It's time for another episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Welcome back, Matt. Yet another week down, successfully dodging COVID scourge. I see. What's been happening? Yeah, look, we have dodged COVID. Thank you. And that's fantastic. So far. Hopefully we'll keep doing that. But I've got a bit of an admission to make this week, James. I don't know whether I feel bad or embarrassed or a bit of both. I actually feel bad <laughs> for my daughter because I gave some advice which turned out not to be such great advice. So I feel a bit bad about that. Uh, well, it happens to the best of us. Oh, I know, but it's about technology. My kids rely on me so much to get all my technology absolutely spot on. <laughs> and I made a rookie error, and I'm pretty embarrassed. But look, I'm just going to tell you about it. Don't mention <laughs> yeah, okay, it. Sure, In confidence. That's yeah, right. right. Thank you. My daughter wanted to buy a new TV. So that's fine. Dad, give me some advice. It's technology. You know all about technology, so surely you'll know all the right answers. You're the go-to guy. Exactly right. And so I talked to her about it, and she looked at different models, and we went through a process, and she'd kind of made her mind up on what I'd call maybe a no-brand or no-name brand. And I went, oh, gee, I reckon you could just spend a little bit more on a name brand and one that just a bit better specs. Surely this one would be better. So finally, I kind of talked her into it and spent $200 more of her money than maybe she wanted to. <laughs> she got it home, got it up on the wall, everything was great, and she went to watch some live TV through one of the apps. And it came up with a warning and said, from a certain date, this is no longer supported. Oh, no! Exactly, by this particular company. And I won't mention any brand names here, James, but it's a rookie error. When you're buying a car, you expect it to come with an engine, you expect it to come with That's some right. wheels. That's you right. buy a smart TV, you just expect it's going to come with all the apps for your viewing pleasure. <laughs> and there must be some contract dispute. It's a slightly older model. They've changed the operating system. This was a proprietary operating system. They've changed the operating system. And I actually didn't believe when my daughter told me what was happening. I went, no, that can't be right. I'll just go and Google a couple of reviews. And sure enough, every review that I came up with said, don't buy this TV. It's got this proprietary <laughs> operating system and you won't be able to watch live TV with some of the Australian channels, some of the Australian companies that have their apps there. And so, you're shot. Oh, I know. So anyway. But how was the picture quality though? Oh, it looked fantastic. Yeah, great. Of the black screen black you could screen. see. <laughs> <laughs> so I suppose the advice here is, Always look at those reviews. Just don't assume things, James. You assume mm. that it's going to have mm. apps with a smart TV. I'd call this actually a low IQ smart TV. It was technically still a smart TV. It still had some apps there. You just couldn't use all the functionality of those apps. So she had to go and use another set-top box to plug in, which I say to people, get rid of that old set-top box you've got, buy a new TV. And in this case, she had to go back to the set-top box with a brand new TV. So I feel bad for her. There's no out, folks. You've uh, got to do your research. You've got to Everyone's do Everyone's got to do their research. Exactly right. And the reviews. It's really important to read those reviews because yeah. if I had to read those reviews, I would have known in a heartbeat this wasn't the TV to get. So sorry, mm. my darling daughter. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do better next time, I promise. <laughs> All right. Well, you've got another menu of tasty treats for us this week. Now, I'm looking forward to getting out on the water with some electric boats. We're going to give some Star Wars style to uh, a bit of playground gadgetry from 25 years ago. And you're going to suggest to me it's probably time for me to ditch my wallet. I've been caught by that trick before, folks, but <laughs> never again. Well, let's start off with a story here. This is an interesting one. Payphones, schmayphones. Remember those old chestnuts from 25 years ago? Well, apparently they're still a thing. Did you know that? 
And guess what? They're getting a bit of an overhaul. What's happening in the world of payphones? I'm confused, James, and we've got to come up with a solution here because you're right. They've been called payphones forever. I remember payphones when I was a kid, payphones before mobile phones. But Telstra has now made the move to make all payphones free. So what do you call a payphone that you don't put money into? Is it a free phone, a public phone? Uh, yeah, right. Thanks very much, Telstra phone. <laughs> I'm not a no sure. Pay phone. A no pay phone. That's, oh, right. that's too many syllables. <laughs> there are. That's probably not going to roll off the tongue that well, is it? And so this is interesting. There are still 15,076 of these free phones, public phones. How many? 15,076 <laughs> out there. I must right, admit, okay. I've used a mobile phone for a long time now. I don't go looking for a Payphone. We've got to come up with the name. I'm just going to call it public phone. Public, okay? okay, public phone. I haven't gone looking for a public phone for a long time. You just don't think oh, about it. I reckon it was early 90s when I last popped a 50 cent coin in. <laughs> That's right. And so the whole idea of it, and even back in the days when we used to use them before mobile phones, you'd have to scrounge around some coins. As you say, you're dropping some coins in there. STD phone calls. Holy street. Yeah. You just keep oh, pumping you, the coins through. pockets would be chinking. Or yeah. remember that company called 1-800-REVERSE. You could make a free call because... Public phones Probably or pay phones used it, back but then? I never did. Oh, yeah. I didn't okay. No, I had to make the phone call to mum and say, then call back. But uh, yeah. And you'd blow 50 cents <laughs> along the way. Yeah. And so the idea there is that 1-800 numbers you could still make from a public phone because they were completely free, no coins needed. So there was a clever company that came up with the idea of 1-800 reverse and the letters reverse built out the number that you dial. Oh, of course. And you could make a phone call through to your loved one who had to accept the reverse charge phone call still, so it had to really be a loved one. That sort of stuff you just don't need anymore. So now mm. any phone, any of those public phones that we see distributed around the nation, you can go to it, you can pick it up, make a call local or STD. Are we showing our age now saying STD, yeah, subscriber yeah, trunk yeah, dialing, yeah. <laughs> long distance phone call. So you can make a long distance phone call, a local phone call, even a phone call to a mobile and it's going to cost you absolutely nothing. Overseas yeah. phone calls, still you'd have to pay for those. But any phone call in this nation, you can do Absolutely for free. Telstra. Yeah. Now, again, we're probably being a little bit privileged, James, by saying, well, we haven't really used it in that long a time. There are still people out there that are using it. Telstra have generated over the last year or typically over the last years, still generated about $5 million a year from this. So it's costing $5 million to the bottom line for Telstra. Right. They believe it's the right thing to do for the community or society as a whole. And people like Salvation Army groups, Smith Family groups. Oh, of course, yeah. They've come out and they said this is a really positive move because people, in particular during a pandemic, people aren't communicating as much as they might have been in the past. They may not be able to afford their mobile phone. They may not be able to put prepaid recharge on it. Being able to walk down the street and pick up a public phone and make a phone call helps keep them connected. And Telstra for a long time have done things like a phone call to Lifeline or an emergency call. They've been free. But now just picking up the phone and ringing a friend. You're not at the stage where you're at lifeline crisis stage, but just being able to say, G'day, how's things going? I'm a bit lonely because no Mm. one else is at home and I can't visit anyone. I think that sort of thing, again, is a good move, good PR move, and it shows a bit of heart from Telstra. Absolutely. Something I hadn't considered, really. Um, And as you mentioned, that word privilege, something that I've been exercising quite a bit, I guess, in in being absolutely ignorant of of the fact that the pay phones, well, the the public phones are still available. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the other thing, and I'm sure you didn't do this, James, but I'm sure you knew some naughty boys who did, prank phone calls. Now, back in the oh, day... they used to cost you 50 cents a piece. That's right. They used to cost you 50 cents <laughs> to go and make a prank phone call. So you didn't do it very often because you didn't have a spare 50 cents. But <laughs> now, those teenage boys that we uh, sometimes refer to, imagine the fun they might be able to have. And it's not going to be able to be traced back to someone's mobile phone. It's going to be that random phone box. Putting ideas into the heads <laughs> of the <laughs> Sorry, evils. Stop there. Yeah, pull it up. Pull up stumps. 
I guess there's no surprises here, Matt, but with the new variety of EVs currently on the market, there's also going to be a variety of charging cable connectors as well, which allows Tesla to be exclusive with their supercharging network. Is that right, Matt? Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that because there are some universal charging componentry. In other words, the connectors, the physical connectors, are often the same. CCS2 will probably rule the day in terms of connectors. But if you take a car that's got the same connector, a CCS2 connector, as a Tesla and plug it into the Tesla supercharger, it doesn't charge. And that's because Tesla said, we built this network. We built this network for our customers. If you've got a competing EV, then we don't want to know about you. And that's one of their competitive advantages. But Tesla have said, we're going to open up our network to the rest of the world. We're going to allow anyone else that's got the same charges, yeah, Yeah. the same charges to come along and use our charging infrastructure, our superchargers. And that's a really interesting thing. Now, there's a little group called Devious that I'm a member of, and don't get too excited about the ideas (laughs) in your head there. It's an electric vehicle group that we meet once a month. And so I went along to our group this week and said, some of you guys own Teslas. What do you think about the idea of anyone else being able to come along and plug in their non-Tesla to your Tesla supercharger? And they were kind of okay with it in general, except they said they'd be a little bit annoyed if they bought a Tesla. Their purchase price of the Tesla has obviously contributed to the building of the Just setting it up. Yeah. And if someone came along and all the stalls were full and there weren't Teslas in there, they'd go, mm, I'd probably have my nose just a little bit out of joint, the fact that I've helped pay for that charging infrastructure and now someone else is using it. But in general, most early adopters of EVs are pretty keen for the whole market to progress mm. forward. So in general, they said, good move. Other cars charging up, it makes sense. And Tesla, there's no doubt about it, they have the best supercharger network. About 3,000 supercharger stations, about 27,000 connectors worldwide have been built by Tesla on the whole premise that they want to be able to progress the EV network and they thought that this was a somewhat of an impediment to selling the cars. We've got to learn some lessons from the past here. When we first started building rail networks, and this is in the UK, mm. we had about three or four or five different gauges, I'm going to give away my nerdiness here, <laughs> different gauges of railway tracks. So different size railway tracks, so it meant a, a train could only take you so far yeah. and then you have to jump off and get on another train because you, you had to change the gauge. Well, there was a feud between Edison and Wedding, Westinghouse as to whether or not America was going to be powered by AC or DC. Mm. And so electrical appliances, when you're plugged into the wall, you're either voting for Westinghouse or you're voting for Edison. And yet it wasn't universal just to plug in an appliance and and just use it. So from a consumer's point of view, I, I can see that this makes sense. However, from a Tesla consumer's point of view, I think they've got a point as well. I think the feeling from most Tesla owners is they want the whole market to progress. And this will help it progress because NRMA is building charges, there are jet charge charges out there, there's various companies that are building charges, but there's no doubt about it that Tesla has the most penetration in the market already. If that can be shared around with other vehicle manufacturers, I think that's fine. I suspect that Tesla will charge a slightly different rate for their non-Tesla vehicles that charge up compared to their vehicles. that probably makes sense, yeah. Yeah, and again, it's their network, they can do what they like with it. One of my cars has got lifetime supercharging for free, so I never have to pay when I plug in to a supercharger. So that's fantastic. Not a sustainable model, obviously, from <laughs> Tesla. So they do have a new car now. If you buy a new car, you 
get a certain number of kilometres free and then you'll pay a rate. And the rate's quite reasonable, but again, I can see it being a little bit dearer. And if you're on a trip and you have to use that charger, you'll probably go, oh, whatever, I'll pay my 30 cents per kilowatt hour or whatever it might be at the Tesla supercharger because it's there, it's convenient, and it's fast. And uh, I think they're all important things. And surely we're going to see um, charging stations opening up all over the place as well. Let's hope that they're not all um, being used up when you go to charge up yourself. Yeah, let's hope so. And we've talked about the repurposing potentially of service stations, mm. prime bit of real estate. And we've also talked, it was only last week, I think, James, we talked about the idea of having chargers built into the road. So there are so many options mm. about how you'll charge your EV, but you've got to get that critical mass first. How secure is your password for your streaming service? It might be time to change your password as uh, streaming video account theft booms during lockdown. That's the big headline. Why is it booming? It's not that expensive (laughs) to go and have your streaming account, Mm. maybe $15 a month, maybe $10 a month for different streaming services. So why would you go and buy a stolen password, username, password combo? Surely you're not going to be able to charge much for that as the stealer of those credentials. So you might pay, what, 10 or 20 bucks for it? So it's saving you $10 a month? I don't get it. Well, I wouldn't even know if someone was stealing mine because it's not coming out of my bank account. I'm still paying the same amount that I would have paid anyway. I've just lost one of my opportunities to, or for a family member to pick up one of the profiles. Yeah, you're right. And you might notice that if, for example, you've got X number of profiles and you go to log in and someone says, hey, James, get off because I want to get on. Well, I'm not on. Oh, who's using the other profile? Uh, a light bulb might go off somewhere, or I should go and change my password. I'll sign out of all devices and change my password. I have seen some examples where people have been just a little bit too forward in the stealing of these details when they actually go and create their own profile. So you log into, say, your (laughs) Netflix account, and you see, yep, there's myself, and there's my partner, and there's my kid, and... Who's Billy? Where's Billy come from? <laughs> and someone called Macca on this. That's what? Right. <laughs> Macca the Great. He signed in with a. Pro- and look at the shows that he's watching. So I think that would. That's that, bold. That I is love very that. bold. I love that. <laughs> and so if you see that, you probably might go, you have I'm to sign out of all here's devices. Here's my flag to show you that I. <laughs> so again, it's one of those things that just signing out, being conscious of it. I've gone to Airbnbs and I've turned on the TV and there's someone else still signed in because they signed in their account and they've forgotten to sign out. So you do the right thing by them. You sign out for someone and sign in with yours and make sure you then sign out at the end of it all. I suppose it's just something to be conscious of. Be aware if someone is using some of your profile or Mm. some of your screens that you've got available to you, different streaming services. And it's probably not that big a deal, except someone out there has got a business model. They're charging for that. And you're paying for other people's steal credentials effectively. They might need to charge only... $8 $8 a month if they didn't have all this theft, but they're having to charge $10 a month to cover the people that are doing the wrong thing. It's just one of those things that I can't believe people are out there, their business model is stealing these credentials and then selling them for not very much money. They must be selling a lot of them to actually <laughs> There's do There's got to be a lot of it going on. Yeah. Now, we've been talking about electric cars, electric motorbikes, electric pickup trucks for a while now. I can't believe that electric boats are only just featuring now in our tech talks. An electric boat startup called Ark wants to make a big splash. Boom, boom. Um, <laughs> Very good. <laughs> why has it taken us so long to get into electric boating? And more importantly, with a name like Ark, how many large mammals am I likely to be able to fit into this thing? <laughs> are you on fire today? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It is interesting. I'm not sure why. I can't answer your question definitively as to why it's taken so long. I suspect it's the fact that the battery you would need in a boat to get a reasonable day of fun is so large that it would make the boats very expensive. Mm. And to give you an idea, they're talking about in this particular model from ARC, the first ARC model, it's got a 200 kilowatt hour battery. Now that's a fair size battery. My Model S has got a 100 kilowatt hour battery and that gets me 632 kilometres. 
the viscosity of water obviously is much greater than the viscosity of air, yeah. and we complain about air resistance and how annoying that is as we're driving along and it's slowing us down, but in a boat, obviously much more so. So I suspect that's the reason, and then the expense of that battery. Batteries are coming down in price, though, so maybe it's at the point. But having said that, this particular model is $300,000 for your oh, wow. for your little runabout, for your little, I mean, it'll tow some skiers behind it, it'll have a good fun day, but it's not a luxury cruise line or anything. It's a $300,000 take it out in the dam and have a bit of fun or out in the harbour and have a bit of fun for the day. So that's probably the reason why it's taken so long to get there. And they've really modelled themselves on Tesla. They make no excuses for it. They say, we are going down the same path as Tesla. We've got an expensive boat that's a performance boat that we're expecting essentially some of our early adopters to cover the cost of the R&D so that we can then filter it down. And we'll see lots of boats out on dams and out on waterfronts in the year years to come and those early adopters everyone can thank them and say thanks very much for buying that $300,000 version. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, yeah, again, watch this space, uh, folks. A fairly exciting sort of market, I would think. Yeah, and they've got the same advantage that an electric car or electric motorbike has. It's got all that torque available from zero. You're not mucking around putting petrol in there, filling it up. If you go to somewhere where there are exclusively boats, you're paying a lot of money for the petrol you might put in a boat, but you might fill it up at home before you go and be smart about that. But again, it kind of makes sense. You're probably only using that boat for a few hours to run around and have some fun. Mm. Then you might park it overnight, plug it in and charge up overnight. You're not that worried about the charging time for it. There's a lot of good reasons for it. But again, I think we just need to get those battery prices down. That's going to be the real key ingredient here. Well, another thing I was thinking about as well, with cars, um, you've got that resistive braking, and you can use that resistive braking to to recharge the battery a little bit, now using the momentum of the car. Well, you were not going to get that for your boat, I would would No, I can't see them having little propellers underneath it that spin to charge it up as you take your hand off the accelerator on the boat. So I can't see it really working in that proposal yeah. and the viscosity of the water slows you down so much anyway you're not yeah. going to be able to coast as such so you're right you're putting in a bigger battery pack because of the fact that you're not going to get the regenerative braking folks here's a blast from the past tamagotchis were once a big deal in school playgrounds the world over not so much anymore um, so it's a bit surprising that tamagotchi has brought out an r2d2 as officially a tamagotchi digital pet now two decades a little bit late here. Matt, this is big news in the world of Tamagotchi. One of my children is still traumatised, James, because I managed to break one of her Tamagotchis. Oh, broke it. Broke I it. Broke it. Broke it. And no, I didn't physically, I physically broke this Tamagotchi and I was the worst person uh, forever. After they'd spent so much time feeding it oh, and cleaning up after looking it. Looking after it. I know all that. And then I can still see the tears running down my uh. daughter's face when, Dad, you broke my Tamagotchi. It was horrible. So I'd forgotten about Tamagotchis, to be honest. I'd probably put them in that part of my brain that said, lock that away and don't think about them again because of the trauma you caused for your child. <laughs> but yeah, an R2-D2 Tamagotchi. Now, I thought there might have been some extra features, something extra might have been pumped into this Tamagotchi to make it new and modern. But no, it's just got a picture of an R2-D2 and it does all the same things in its very low, very poor quality graphics. You've still got to feed it. <laughs> you still got to clean were. up. That's right. You've still got to clean up after it, which I don't quite get because an R2-D2 was an astromech. I don't know there was a lot of cleaning up to do after R2-D2. No. <laughs> I don't know. So I don't quite get this one, but I did like the Tamagotchi. It was a very simple little process, nice and uncomplicated. Maybe taught your child about looking after pets, maybe looking after babies when they finally had them one day. I'm not sure if it was quite that good, but I, I like the concept of it. But 
25 years ago, sure, but now I I'm can't just... believe that Tamagotchi are still selling anything at this stage. <laughs> That's right. Uh, <laughs> uh, was, it, was the company called Tamagotchi or were they Tamagotchis that came from a different company? I actually think the toy was called Tamagotchi. I yeah, don't they know. might have been Nintendo or something. I don't know, I don't know who made the Tamagotchi toy, but the, the toy itself was the Tamagotchi. And you saw at the peak, you saw every child yeah. on their key oh, ring big. with one or two or oh, three. No, the nemesis of any teacher. In, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and having to look after them all, and, and sorry, sir, I've just got to duck out of the classroom because yeah, I've got to go and feed my Tamagotchi. Me, feeding my Tamagotchi, just give me a moment. And yeah. that would have been a legitimate excuse in the classroom, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, if you really like your Tamagotchi, if, so if you... this is some good old-fashioned um, uh, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation on behalf of Star Wars here, um, to, <laughs> it trying seems to bring this thing back to life. Well, it seems to me that you release anything that's related to Star Wars, yeah. and it's going to be... Somehow, I'm sold. I'm going to get myself one. (laughs) That's right. Good work. We need to do a Star Wars special for Tech Talk. That would send the listening audience through the roof, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Apple created the tablet market and it dominates us still. Matt, what are the numbers coming out of the tablet market these days? Well, I'd be really proud of creating anything that created an entire segment. And that's Mm. exactly what. Apple did. There used to be tablets, computers that were called tablets, and I used to have a Toshiba. I loved my Toshiba tablet, and I could spin my screen around backwards and fold it down itself, and I could write on the screen. It was still a big notebook computer, but I could write on the screen, and that was pretty cool. So I used to call that a tablet, mainly because Toshiba called it a tablet. Mm. But when Apple brought out the first tablet, the first iPad, that was a whole new market segment. This whole concept of a touchscreen computer, a big iPhone, if you like, that created a market segment and they're still dominating. And even back in those days, they knew it was going to be big. The 3rd of April, 2010, was the first ever iPad that was released. Two days before that... So it's only just, what, 11 years old? 11 years old, that's right. But two days before that, and this is classic Apple marketing... They had an episode of Modern Family. If you remember Modern Family, not on anymore, but still a very good show. And Phil Dumphy was the father. I loved him. I loved him. He was a a gadget-loving father. And two days before the iPad was released, there was an episode of Modern Family released. And the whole premise of that episode was the kids were rushing around to buy dad one of these new fame-dangled iPad things that was about to come out. And people watching the show would go, iPad? What are they talking about? I've never heard of this iPad thing. It's because it hadn't even been released yet. So talk about product placement by Apple, just absolutely brilliant. So that got people talking about it, all excitement. Two days later, 3rd of April, out comes the official iPad. But even now, 11 years later, they created the market segment. They dominated the market segment. But then, of course, competitors come along and do things that are better, perhaps. Well, at the moment, they're still dominating. In the second quarter of this year, so we're talking about April to June this year, they sold... 12.9 12.9 million iPads, and that's despite... Still going strong. That's very strong, but that's despite a bit of chip again that we've talked about. Supply has been a bit tough for iPad, as it has been for all the tablet manufacturers, but they've had the number one spot there, and they continue to have the number one spot. They had 43.1% market share in that quarter. Now, you take someone mm. like Samsung, who are in number two position, 26.8%, they've got some very nice tablets. They've got the S7, which is a very popular tablet. They're running Android. Any of those Android lovers out there are obviously going to lean towards an Android version, but they've still only been able to get to 26.8% market share. Third, Lenovo. Lenovo are number one. We've talked about that before. Number one in the PC market. They're number three in the tablet market, 15.7%. Amazon surprised me. 
They've got the Fire tablet, and that's coming at number four at 14.4%. So even despite all this competition, even despite these Android ones out there, Apple has still got that number one spot with 43.1%. And those numbers are quite incredible, aren't they? 12.9 million. You'd think everyone that wanted to get an iPad would already have an iPad, and there's new versions coming out all the time, of course, but 12.9 million from one manufacturer still, that's a huge number. They're a powerhouse, an absolute powerhouse. Are you still carrying a wallet? I have one, but it very rarely leaves the house now. It's more of a store for the cards that I rarely use, I guess. The question is, though, is it time to throw away all our wallets as more and more of the old card tech goes digital? There are very few reasons to carry your wallet now. One of the reasons used to be you were going to the doctor. You needed your healthcare card. Mm. You had driver's licenses have been on there for some time now, especially yeah. during the pandemic. We've all got the Service News of the Wales app in New South Wales. We've had the ability to have our credit cards on our phone, on our watch, whatever, for some time. So you go out the door to do some shopping. You go out the door to drive your car. You're okay. Take your phone with you. Go to the doctor, though. Ah, I need to still grab the old-fashioned wallet. Until now, Apple has just allowed the major health insurers, we're talking about Medibank, Bupa, NIB, GU Health, HBF, they're all available in your Apple wallet now. So if you go to the doctor and you needed your healthcare card, they pull out the machine to swipe that across, you just pull out your phone, Apple wallet, there you go. So I'm struggling to see the reasons now you might need to still carry around your physical wallet. You don't use cash anymore, we haven't used cash for a while. I'm sure there are people still stashing their $50 notes under their mattress. (laughs) Maybe so. And then they don't need their wallet, do they? They need to take their mattress out. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but the the whole concept here is that you're just getting to the point where so many things are on your phone. And people say, what about if your phone goes flat or what if you lose your phone? Sure, you can lose your wallet as well. But I'd rather have everything on my phone and lose my phone secure in the knowledge that I've got a password on there, secure in the mm. knowledge they can't look at my face and see my same face. I can wipe that phone remotely if it gets stolen, for example. And then I get my new phone out and I restore my complete backup and there's all my information still there. So I don't need to go and cancel cards and try and get those banks to send me out those cards again or health insurers, whatever it might be. So yes, it can go flat. Yes, it can get stolen, but they're better scenarios than the old fashioned wallet, which is much easier to steal. And I haven't got find my wallet on my wallet, for example, (laughs) so I can't see where that thief might have taken my wallet to and try and track them down. I'm a big fan of this, James. I believe get rid of the wallet. Don't carry a wallet anymore for everything you can possibly do. It's on the way out. Uh, Well, we're in the 21st century, folks, and not just in the 21st century, 20 years into the 21st century. We're we're more than a fifth the way in. We are a fifth, and I think you've mentioned that before. We're on our way to being through the first quarter of this century. Holy Uh, truth. (laughs) It's happened so quickly. And speaking of, two years ago, I'd never heard of Zoom. Now, I'd I'd just be dead in the water without it. Love it or hate it, this video conferencing firm has kept education, industry and business alive through the lockdowns of the pandemic. Uh, But it seems that a class action against them on account of invasion of privacy has caused a bit of a stir, Matt. It has caused a bit of a stir. And just the same as we talked about Apple creating an entire market segment. Wow, I'd be proud of that. Zoom have really taken over the name, a bit like a Vegemite, for example. Mm. Who says, I'm going to put yeast extract on their toast? <laughs> they say, I'm going to put Vegemite on their toast. Yeah. I don't say either because it's oh, disgusting yeah, to me. You stole cold stuff in an esky, don't you? That's exactly right. You don't put no, it in a, brand. a plastic insulated container. Yeah. You put it in your esky. So any of those brands that have gotten to the point where they own the segment so much that you refer to that segment, that market segment by the name, mm. fantastic. And Zoom has done that. Before the pandemic hit, 
we talked about video conferencing. We might have talked about FaceTime if you're an Apple user, but you generally talked about video conferencing of some description. Now, who goes on a video conference call? Everyone goes on a Zoom Zoom, call. It's one syllable. That probably helps because we like to shorten things down a bit. But they've captured so much of the market. Now, the conundrum for Zoom at the very beginning was you had all these people out there who weren't necessarily tech natives. They were trying to work out how to access their video conference call, how to make it easy for them. So Zoom said, we'll own this market by making it incredibly easy for people to make a Zoom call. But in doing so, they probably went a little bit too far in the relaxation stakes for security. Mm. So people could get onto a Zoom call, nice and easy. That was great. Security, we'll get around to that later on. And of course, then we saw those famous incidents of mainly comedians, I suppose, yeah. doing Zoom bombing. Zoom bombing. You can jump on YouTube and you can see Conan O'Brien. I'm sure you could catch Hamish and Andy as well. All those sort of examples there where people would Zoom bomb. And that was all very funny. You'd be on a Zoom conference call and who's that in the corner? Some comedian making a few jokes. But of course, it also meant that maybe you could have people Zoom bombing things at a corporate level, maybe spying on things, maybe Mm. getting confidential information they shouldn't have access to. And that's where this lawsuit's come about, this class action. $86 million Zoom has had to pay out as a class action because all these people said, I actually didn't think your security was good enough. And the court agreed. The court said, no, your security wasn't good enough, Mr. Zoom. We need you to increase that security. And they have done that, to their credit. They've actually taken notice of that and they've increased the security. And some people are unhappy about that because they say, oh, it's more complicated to get on my Zoom call now (laughs) because it's a bit more secure. We've got to get that happy balance somewhere there. We've got to have people comfortable enough using whatever software they're using and confident in the security settings on that and still making it easy to use. It's a fine line there. Yeah, a real tightrope to walk right there. Now, the next story is very cool and a testament to modern innovation and sustainability. Turns out that Tokyo's Olympic medals are made from recycled electronics. What's this about? Well, I would almost say only in Japan because Japan has got a great history in electronics, but it was actually first done back in Vancouver for the Winter Olympics of 2010. So it happened then, much smaller scale because obviously fewer winter medals are given out than summer medals. Mm -hmm. But this is a really good thing where... The, the whole concept was take some of those old electronics and turn them into metals. Now, if we go back a bit, James, just a bit of history here. Back in the Olympics in 1904, 08 and 1912, if you won a gold medal, you would have taken it to a pawn shop because they were gold. The <laughs> gold medal itself that you won was pure gold and the country that was hosting those Olympics, they had to, as part of the cost of hosting the Olympics, had to provide pure gold medals. I assume they were pure silver and pure bronze, but that didn't matter that much because they're not as expensive, obviously. And if you so, but nowadays you see you see the, the winners all biting into their medals for their f- official photos and stuff. I love it. I love right. it. Um, and that goes back to the prospectus, doesn't it? Because you would <laughs> fool's gold. If someone painted some metal that was not gold, a gold colour and said, here, buy some gold off me, gold's actually quite soft. soft. So they would bite into right. it to see if it was actually, what a very scientific way of testing to see if it was gold. Maybe they should have checked the density, weighed it and checked the volume of like it or something. Archimedes did all the time. Again. Yeah, maybe yeah. that would make more sense, but biting into it looked pretty cool. So yeah, you're right. You have modern athletes still biting into it, time on a tradition, I'm sure. But I did the actual costing and looked at the minimum size of a gold medal or any of the medals has to be a certain size. And if you looked at that minimum size back in 1912, if it was pure gold in today's money, it was worth about $13,000. So if you had that gold medal back in 1912, you might have said, hey, this is great. I'll go and hock that and get some value for the metal that's in that particular medal. 1916, World War I, Olympics were cancelled. 1920, someone said, you know what, 
this just isn't sustainable. <laughs> we're going to give out more and more medals at each Olympics. We're going to increase the number of sports. We've got all sorts of things. Tiddly Especially when you're bringing uh, skateboarding and BMX riding and all that sort of stuff. And yeah. no disrespect to the people who have won medals in no, skateboarding. Congratulations BMX. To Well done. It's not your traditional sort of sports that you would typically tend to see in the Olympics. But, yeah, it's not going to be sustainable to have gold in all those. So there are requirements now. Every gold medal has to have at least six grams of gold. So it's still got gold in there. Yeah, but so they've got a standard there. They've got yeah. a standard. It's got to be 92.5% silver. But if you break down the cost of those metals now, it's only worth about $800, not $13,000. That's a bit better. But in Japan, they said, let's take some old electronics and turn them into the metals. So they gathered about 5 million cell phones. They gathered in total about 47,000 tonnes of tech waste. They extracted from that 30 kilograms of gold, three and a half tons of silver and 2.2 tons of bronze. And from those components, they then made all the medals, the 5,000 medals that we just gave out during the Olympics. Well, we didn't give them out, James. <laughs> you and I didn't give them out, but community society gave them to the athletes at the Olympic Games in Tokyo. So those 5,000 medals were all made from typically cell phones and some other e-waste. So I thought it was quite nice. It makes me very, very proud to think that Ariane Titmus might be um, carrying a little bit of my old Nokia <laughs> Uh, around a neck. (laughs) Absolutely. And so I think that's pretty cool. But it started me thinking actually about global e-waste and just electronic waste in general. So we actually generate 55 million tonnes of global e-waste each year, Mm. which is a big number. Mm. So the 5 million tonnes they got of mobile phones for Tokyo was only a drop in the ocean really in terms of the total e-waste. That's increased by 21% over the last five years. So it is a major problem. Coming up with ways to recycle it, I think, is a great idea. And I think what we'll do as time goes on is we'll find better ways to recycle and it'll be cheaper to recycle than it will to be go and extract that metal in the first place. But it also got me thinking about batteries for cars. One mm. of the most common things, whenever I post something about an EV or even when we do our tech talk and we sometimes vaguely mention EVs every now and again, James. Once or twice, I think I remember doing it. <laughs> That's right. In the past. People are quick to jump all over it and they say, oh no, what about in 10 years' time when this EV is retired on the batteries users and you've got to go and bury all that terrible heavy metals. They always claim heavy metals. I don't know why they claim heavy metals mm. in the, the modern battery. Lithium is not a heavy metal, but anyway. No, yeah, that's yeah. right. So this is a real issue. And there's a couple of things that I take exception to there. When you go and buy a new petrol-powered car, no one says, what about in 250,000 kilometres? You'll have to go and throw out that engine because it'll be all worn out. No one really worries about what you do in the engine in five years' time. Plus, as the engine wears out, as the rings get a bit loose in the cylinder and you start burning a bit more petrol than it should or a bit more pollution, no one says, what about all that that's happening? Mm. And then I think you, you think about things like... Some oil. Like, oh, well, I don't know. what If you can recycle some oil, perhaps you can. But but there seems to be, uh, yeah, whenever I change my own oil, I was thinking, what, is, what am I going to do with this sump oil? And there, I think there are ways to recycle, but no one says, oh, no, in the life of this engine, it's going to chew up 50 litres of sump oil. What's that going to do to the environment? But when it comes to batteries in electric vehicle. That seems to be the easy attack mode, if you like. And so a couple of things around that. I did a bit more research on it. And so you might get, rather than say 250,000 kilometres out of a petrol engine before it's got to have a major overhaul or throw it out, you probably get more like 500,000 kilometres out of batteries. So it's a lot yeah, longer lifetime. Long but more the, to the point, you don't use a battery for a set amount of time and then it just stops working. It just slowly degrades over time. So, for example, you might have your battery down to, say, 95% of what it could do when it was new after it's done 100,000 kilometres. After Mm. 300,000 kilometres, you might be down to, say, 90%. So you might choose at some point in time your battery degradation has gotten to a point where you go, you know what, I'm not happy with 80%, 70%, 50%, whatever it might be, 
of the battery life, in other words, the range of this, it's time to replace my battery. But you don't throw it out. You don't go and bury it with all those heavy metals. You go and repurpose it. So what they do mainly with batteries after they've had a useful life in a car is they get used in a building, for example. You're not so worried about the battery degradation there. If you're only getting 70% of the battery in a building, that's okay because you're not carrying around that battery like you are in a car Mm. where it's more important to have all that battery life. So you get that repurposing. That's the first thing they'll do. And then the second stage they'll go through is actually recycling. But already manufacturers are at the point where they can crush down the metals that are in a battery and extract 97% of that to be put back into, guess what, another battery. (laughs) So none of those heavy metals are buried and wreck the environment. And I still don't know what heavy metals are in a modern battery. Maybe I should do an analysis and see, because I don't know. I mean, yeah. you tell me, James, nickel, lithium, manganese, some of these, they're not I don't think metals. any of those count, no. So no. I don't know what these heavy metals are that are destroying the environment when we bury these batteries, which we're not, in fact, burying. So recycling in society is important. Recycling electronics is really important. Keeping all these things that we use and having some sort of secondary life for them is important, but don't pick on the poor old EV batteries. I don't think they're the culprit here. Well, we're heading into um, a world where sustainability is not an afterthought. Sustainability is at the front of developing technology and and repurposing goods is a really big thing. I think we've woken up to that. And Mm. I really like it when you see some creative uses of that repurposing, like the Olympic Games where we took some old electronics and turned them into metals. There's lots of those things, I think, that are quite creative uses or repurposing or recycling. And again, I think now when you're manufacturing something, as part of that manufacturing process, you should be saying, I'm going to need these components to make this, and this is the life cycle of that, and then at the end of the life cycle, this is what I'll be this able to is do what with will it. happen, yeah. Mm. Mm. All right, and just like that, it's all over for another week, folks. Thanks again, Matt, for another smorgasbord of tech tidbits, and thank you, folks, for clicking on our tech talk once again. It's an absolute pleasure to deliver this podcast week after week. Hope you can all join us again next week. I'm your host, James Eddy, and don't forget to like and leave a comment.